I'm excited as I start a new theme. It's called On the Front Lines. And if you remember, front lines is defined for the military. It's the line or part of an army that is closest to the enemy. Turn to your neighbor and say, how close to the enemy are you? How close to the enemy are you? On the front lines. Or it's defined as the important or influential position in a debate or movement. You know, this morning as we think about frontline workers, we know that obviously firemen, paramedics, doctors, nurses, healthcare, police are all considered frontline workers. They are out there and they are firemen or obviously their enemy is fire, right? Reminds me when I was a kid, I used to love playing with fire and I set you know, a couple, probably a few fields on fire just to have fun because when you're young and you're playing with matches, that's the fun thing to do, right? So I was probably like an enemy to the firemen back then. I had a couple good ones. There was the one in Val Vista that was a really big fire. Anyway, back in my old days. But firemen fight fires, right? Paramedics, they're out there and they're trying to save lives. Doctors, we know are saving lives. Nurses, healthcare workers, and police are out there dealing with bad people every single day. But one of the people and groups of people who are on the front lines every single day are Christians. We are on the front line every single day. We are being attacked by the enemy. The enemy is attacking us. He's attacking our friends. He's attacking our family. He's attacking just every single thing that is good in life. We as Christians, as believers, we are on the front line. Christ followers, disciples of Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at King David again as we talk about being on the front lines and someone who we know for most of us is a frontline hero. 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we're going to start in verse 4. Three days later when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amicalites had made a raid into the Negev and the Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground because there's no firefighters there. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, not a good idea, but David's two wives, Anoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and their daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. David found strength in the Lord his God. And then he said to Abithiar the priest, bring me the ephod. So Abithiar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Turn your neighbor and say, you will recover everything that's been taken from you. Verse 9. David and his 600 men set out and they came to the brook Bissor. But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Verse 11. And along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and they brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins, for he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before his lungs, before long, his strength returned. Verse 13, David says, who, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. 
I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amicalite. He replied, my master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. Turn to your neighbor and say, oh, that's sick. Verse 14, we were on our way back from the raiding the Carathites and the Negev, the territory of Judah and the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. Will you lead me to this band of raiders? Not raiders who are going to be the Steelers today. Will you lead me to the band of raiders, David asked. The young man replied, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me nor give me back to my master, then I will guide you to them. Last verse. Verse 16, so he led David to them, and they found the Amicalites spread across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah. And so this morning, we look at David, and we're going to look at Jesus here again as we look at frontline workers. But as we look at David and we look at part of his story, you know, here's a man that when he was in his late teens, you know, gets anointed to be king. And David spent 15 years from the time that he was anointed, over a little over 15 years from the time he was anointed until he became the king of Israel. David spent 13 years running from King Saul, which is his father-in-law, right? He married one of Saul's daughter. Spent 13 years running from his father-in-law, 15 years from the time a prophet of God came to him, anointed him, David, you are the king of Israel. Didn't happen that day, didn't happen that night. It happened over 15 years. And so for David, he spent many years running from one battle to the next. Turn to your neighbor and say, from one battle to the next. And unfortunately for David, at one of his times where he was out in a battle, he comes home to some of the worst news that you could ever see. His home was burned to the ground, his wood shack, the mansion with the white picket fence, the Lamborghini that he just got from Joel, everything that he had just burned to the ground. And more than that, his two wives, not one, his two wives, all taken. And the 600 men that were fighting with David, all of their wives, all of their kids, everything was gone, robbed, robbed, nothing, nothing like coming home. And how many of us know as men and women who work a full day, when you come home, just imagine walking into your house and every single thing in, in your house gone. Or if you don't have a house, you know, just imagine going to work all day, coming back to find that your car was stolen or robbed, right? After a hard day's work, after a long night's work, one of the worst feelings in the whole entire world is to see, I've got nothing. And so his men, I love this, says that they cried all night and they cried until they couldn't cry no more. They cried, right? These, and these weren't, these were called mighty men. These were not sissy men by any means. These men, these 600 men, these were the best of the best. These were the elite men. They, they would take out armies upon armies upon armies upon armies. These men were the best. They were strong, but not only were they strong, they were smart and powerful. And when they saw that they had lost everything, it said they cried until they couldn't cry no more. Have you ever seen someone cry until they couldn't cry no more? Have you ever watched someone cry until they cry no more? It's sad that, you know, they were, they were robbed of everything that was good for them. It was what they were fighting for. This is what they fought for. They fought for their families. They fought for more money. John 10.10 10 says, we know that the thieves, 
purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil has been robbing people for a long time. You know, we know that in Genesis chapter, we see him in the beginning, just in the beginning, right? He robs, who did he rob first? Adam and Eve. From the very beginning and even till 2021. Now, some of us, I don't know if you ever were into five-finger discounts. And five-finger discounts were back in the day where you thought your five fingers could touch something and take it and put it in your pocket and walk away because it was your five-finger discount for the day. You know, some people, you know, become professional thieves. And as you look at Satan, here's someone who's been robbing since when? The beginning of time until 2021 today, September 19th. Satan has been robbing people. He robbed David and his mighty men, even the mighty men. He used the Amicalites to rob David and his mighty men. Even those mighty men totally ripped off, right? And the question is, what is Satan robbing you of? Because I guarantee you, some of us might say, well, he's not, you know, he's not doing anything to me. He's not hurting me. He's not harming me. If he took on David and his mighty men, I guarantee you he's trying to rob you this morning. And you're mighty and you're strong and you're awesome and you're powerful, right? But I guarantee you he's after you just the same. And so David's men cried all night until their spirit, their feelings, their emotions became bitter. How many of you have ever met a bitter person? How many of you have met someone who was just angry and bitter about everything? You know, sometimes in families we see that, the families and moms and in-laws and, you know, sisters and cousins and dogs and rats and hate rats. I really hate rats. Snakes. Bitter, right? These men were bitter and they had a probably a somewhat good reason to. They lost their wife, right? Would you be bitter if someone stole your wife? Would you be a little upset if someone stole your wife? They allowed that emotion to go from sadness to bitterness to hate until they wanted to kill their, and he wasn't the king at the time, but he was their leader, David. So they felt the sense of loss. They felt this loss of my wife is gone. And they didn't throw a party. They didn't go around dancing. Yay, she's gone. They wept and cried and they were sad. But that sadness led to bitterness. And, and sadness, when you allow it, will lead every single person to bitterness. Bitterness is a feeling and emotion that you can't deal with something on your own. You have to blame somebody else. And so they all came to David and they wanted to stone him. They didn't want to stone him. I'm not, not talking about marijuana. They wanted to take rocks and they wanted to throw it at King or David, the leader at the time, and they wanted to kill him. And so you take a step back and you see David in this, in this moment and in this picture. All of us, just to, just to paint a picture, David, who again, running from King Saul 13 years, from one battle to the next, David, who these men came to him, the men who came to David were broken. It says that they were in debt and they came to David and they started just going from one battle to the next to where they they compiled all kinds of good stuff, money and silver and gold and wives in between until they were became wealthy men. These men came to David with nothing, but now they were wealthy men and they were strong and they were powerful and they would win battle after battle after battle because David was a godly man, right? So as David looks around, he sees his 600 men who used to love him. Now they hate him. One day they loved him. 
you're the best, you're, you're my homie, you're all those good things, and then next minute later, I hate you, I don't want to kill you. How would David feel to look around and to be uh, surrounded by 600 men who wanted to kill him? How would it feel to be, not, we're not talking about, you know, five. We're not talking about one person who wanted, he was surrounded by 600 of some of the toughest, meanest men who wanted to do one thing. They wanted to kill him. But it says David found something. And I love how David found something in this moment. What did David find? What was it exactly that David found when 600 men had, you know, saliva and spit coming out of their faces and their, and their eyes were dry from crying all night? What was it as he was looking around at these 600 men? What exactly was it that he found? It says that David found strength in the Lord. He didn't go to those 600 men and he didn't cry and he didn't beg for forgiveness. David didn't go and he didn't just, you know, get on his knees and, ah, I love you and I'm sorry and this and the other. And maybe he did, but it's not in the text, right? But it says that David found one thing that he desperately needed. He found his strength in the Lord. And I want to encourage you this morning. Many of us, we look for strength and joy in many different places and many different things. Many of us this morning, we go out and we look for strength from our jobs, from our employers, from our paychecks. We look for happiness in the same places in our jobs and our paychecks and our friends. We look for joy, happiness, and strength in all the wrong places. And for King David to be surrounded by 600 men who wanted to do one thing in killing him, it says that he found strength. He found peace. He found this powerful strength from only God alone. Every single day as we are out there serving on the front lines, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, you need to make sure that you find your strength in God alone. And so David inquires of the Lord. And it says that David asked God, should we go after these people and get our belongings back. And God replies, yes, you will win. And I love it because as soon as they do, remember there's 600 men. And as soon as they take off, it says that the 200 men decided, I can't do it. I'm too tired. Got to remember, these guys are fighting every day. They weren't, you know, like me selling food, which is, it's more mentally tiring than physically, right? These guys were out beating up, killing chopping off people's heads, no offense, they were warriors, right? The physical strength, can you imagine fighting? And for us who've ever been in, you know, like a fist fight or any kind of fight before, after, you know, an hour, imagine a couple hours. And even this battle here, when they get to the camp where they find their stuff, it says they battled for almost 40 hours straight, 40 hours of fighting. But 200 out of the 600 said, I can't go today. Coach, David, sorry, king, leader, friend. 200 said, I'm so exhausted. I just can't do it. You know, there's a lot of people who are in this position today where they're saying, I am so exhausted. I just can't do it. I am so exhausted. I just can't go. A third of David's men had to stay there. And it's right before they get to where they're trying to find the enemy. They find a, a lost servant. They find a, a, a guy who was abandoned. And for these, these people, the Amicalites, what they call them, the Raiders, right? Who remember are going to beat the Steelers today. They, they abandoned this servant because he was sick. And they said, eh, 
I'm done with you. You're sick. You're no good to me. And they kick him out. So as David finds this guy, immediately remember he gave him some fig cakes. What a nice guy. He gave him some raisins. Sounds like a good lunch, right? So we go have some fig cakes today. As soon as he finds this servant, he says to the young man, will you lead me to the enemy? Will you take me and lead me to the enemy? And the servant says, I will, but you have to promise me two things. One, you won't kill me afterwards, right? And secondly, let me go free and don't give me back to my master. And David absolutely agreed. So I wanted to paint the picture of King David this morning. And I want you to kind of remember this story as we go into one more story and then we'll pull it all together. So I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 9, verse 18 as we look at Jesus now. And as Jesus was saying this, the leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can't, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hands on her. And Jesus and his disciples got up and went with him. Just then a woman who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding came up behind him. She touched the fringe of his robe. She thought, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, daughter, be encouraged, your faith has made you well. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus arrived at the official's home, he saw the noisy crowd and heard the funeral music. Verse 24, get out, he told them. The girl isn't dead, she's only asleep. But the crowd laughed at him. Nothing like being Jesus and being laughed at, right? Verse 25, after the crowd was put outside, however, Jesus went in, took the girl by the hand, and she stood up. The report of this miracle swept through the entire countryside. If you look at Jesus' life and we look at the three and a half years that he was in ministry, we know we just looked at two different men and, and we shared a story of David and now we're sharing a story of Jesus. We know that King David, one of the mightiest warriors, one of the mightiest worshipers because we have his songs in the book of Psalms, right? We know that King David was on the front lines. He was fighting enemy after enemy after enemy. Physically, this man was crazy and amazing, all because he had the Spirit of God inside of him. And we see Jesus now in this story and all through the New Testament. Jesus was on the front lines, but he wasn't so much battling people physically as he was spiritually. And just to look at spiritually versus physically at the same time, just as tough and just as tiring. We know that for Jesus, Jesus was always confronted with people. Imagine just trying to be a good person and do good things every single day and having a religious person every single day of your life, a religious person who wanted to come and complain to you. Just imagine every single day, a religious person who said, basically they don't like you and they're always were looking for a way to put you down. Jesus setting out to heal people, deliver people, save people, set people free. But in the midst every single day, on his front lines, as he was spiritually helping people find life, as he was spiritually fighting the enemy and taking the enemy out of these people's lives, battling on the front lines, a little different than King David, Jesus was pulled in so many different directions. King David fighting physically brutal wars, right? And how did King David, how did King David survive? How did this man, this warrior survive? Because we know the one key that David told us is he, because he found his strength in the Lord. How did Jesus dealing with angry, crazy people every single day? We know that in Mark 135, it says, before daybreak, 
the next morning, Jesus got up and he went out to an isolated place to pray. Luke 5, 16, Jesus often withdrew. Now it says lonely places or the wilderness and Jesus prayed. And then John 4, um, John 4:34. my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. How did Jesus handle being on the front lines? He prayed constantly. How did Jesus handle dealing with the religious people? See, and I'm one of those persons, when I look at the stories, you know, doing good for other people feels good, right? It's empowering. When you're out doing good and you're giving, you know, money to people and you're taking care of the homeless and you're doing this and you're doing that, it feels good. There's an empowering feeling by doing good. But at the same time, when you have someone every single day who's stabbing you in the back, at the same time as they're stabbing you in the back, they're questioning you. You don't know what you're doing. They're doing this, Jesus. And secretly they wanted to kill him, right, the whole time. And Jesus knowing their thoughts. Think about this, how every interaction that Jesus had with every single person, knowing the whole entire conversation before it happened, knowing every single thought and word that would come out before it ever happened. Jesus still pushing through. In the story I read today, we see a lady who bled for 12 years, 12 full years. That's tiring and exhausting in itself, right? Some of us bleed for an hour and we're totally freaked out. Take me to the hospital, take me to the ER. I'm dying, I'm going to glory now, right? Some of us men who are, are wimpy and we see blood, we'll see a little bit of blood and we pass right out. This woman bled for 12 years and she was physically exhausted in her mind. If I can just get close to Jesus, if I can just touch a part of his robe, if I can just touch the fringe of his robe, that is all I need. And as she's thinking this, there's a guy who's having the conversation with Jesus. My daughter has died. My daughter has died. But you know what, Jesus? I know that you can come and bring her to life. Jesus being pulled, just think in so many different directions. How many of us, we only have two arms? Right? I don't know if any of you have an extra one, but most of us have two arms. And so here in this story, he's being pulled in one direction from this lady. He's being pulled in the other direction from the other man. Where did he get his motivation, his strength? We know that David, his strength was in the Lord. We know for Jesus, he prayed constantly. And then we know that in John 34, his food, his nourishment, which is strength, which is protein, right? Didn't come from eating filet mignon, which sounds really nice. Maybe a little demi-glaze on top, right? Wasn't from ribeye that had a nice little bit of salt and pepper glaze on the outside. His strength came from doing the will of God. No matter how we're pulled, no matter when we're being pulled by work, no matter when we're being pulled by friends, the strength, Jesus said, my strength is from doing what God wants me to do. So I'm going to need a few helpers real quick. Joel, Micah, Jason, come on up here real quick. And um, if you guys can actually stand right here, this one's going to be you. I brought you lunch. Yep. There's a little goodie in there for you. Okay. Actually, pass that one to Jason. Well, he's on the end. He's got to have that one actually. So we can swap. Joel, you got to be over here. You can tell these guys how nice they look, right? Look wonderful. See, a lot of us, we find nourishment in different places. Joe, why don't you open up your bag and show us what you got in your bag this morning. Let's, let's see where Joel finds his nourishment. 
After you touch it, you own it, okay? What is it? <laughs> what is it? Peanuts? So for many Christians, as we think about donut for a second, how many of us enjoy a good little donut? But inside of a donut, and we know Joel lives, lives on them, but in a donut, there's a lot of sugar, right? And how many of us know you eat too much sugar, eventually you're going to what? You're going to crash. There's a lot of Christians today who want to be donut Christians. And all they want to do is a sugar rush. Let me get into church. Let me get a little worship. Let me get a little word. Let me get a little sugar. And then they crash two hours later. Or even during the week, there's many Christians who turn on the TV and they listen to a pastor on podcast. Let me just get a little sugar. I need something today. I need something tomorrow. There's nothing substantial in their life holding them and sustaining them through the day because they live, no offense, as a donut kind of Christian. Michael, why don't you go open your bag for us. <laughs> now, Mike in his bag, look at that. He's got a nice little Caesar salad. Now, for some people, people would look at that Caesar and salad and say, that's the only food that I would need, right? Now, most of us would look at a salad and say, that's semi-healthy, right? There's lettuce, which really isn't nothing of value at all. But there is some chicken, this one actually has chicken and bacon, right? So you get double the protein. It's got Caesar dressing, so it's got some dairy. But for some people, and people, no offense, like Joel, they can't be happy and satisfied eating salad every day. It, it would feel good for a little bit. The salad would be nice and tasty for a little bit. But for a lot of people eating salad, you know what happens? They're left wanting more. And so you have salad Christians today who, you know, just give me, I just want the healthy part of the gospel. I just need to hear the prosperity part of the gospel. I just need to hear the part of the gospel where everything is going to be okay. I just want to hear all the good things that are in the Bible. Don't tell me about how life is hard sometimes. Don't tell me how about how life is a process. Don't tell me how I may have to have ups and downs and this and that and twists and turns. For some Christians, they want just the healthiest, best part of the gospel. Jason, go ahead and open your bag. <laughs> now, Jason has a chicken salad sandwich. Now, there is some bread. There is some chicken. There is some dairy. And what I want to liken that to this morning is Christians who've learned how to have a balanced life. There's a balanced life. I know that every single day, there are things that I have to get done. I can't avoid my time in prayer because it's the prayer that's going to sustain me. I know that in my balanced life, there's time. I just got to get some of the word for myself. Not listening to anybody on the radio. I need to open up my own Bible. And I need to read what my own Bible says because I need a little bit of Bible, a little bit of word to sustain me through the day. And then lastly, like Jesus said, my food and nourishment comes from doing what God's put me here today. Praying being filled with the Word of God, and then doing what God has put us here to do. You know, on the radio, if you listen to Air One, you hear all the time Greg Laurie, and he has this great quote on Air One. And he says that so many people are stuck doing good things when they're being robbed of God's best things, right? So many people are stuck doing good things. And we know there's a lot of good things to do, right? It's 
good to eat a donut once in a while. It's good to have salad once in a while. But God has put us here as Christians to live a very balanced life, the lining out the little things that we need to be healthy. Boys, you can grab a seat, men and boys. Awesome. All men, yep. Give a hand for the guys there. You can keep what's in your bag or throw it away or, or give it away or throw it out your window when you drive, but do it when you get on the street, right? There's so many different things that describe us Christians today. Donut Christians, salad Christians, sandwich Christians. But the question is, how are you defining your Christianity? How do you define to the world that you live in? How are you defining the world that you live in, the Christianity, the belief, and the faith that God has put inside of you? Now, for some, we also take a step back and we see that if I love donuts, how many people, if you love donuts, how many people are you going to tell that you love donuts? Now, if a, <laughs> if a donut really means a lot to you, if a donut, and sorry, Joel, if a donut really means a lot to you, and, and this is what maybe you've learned to be sustained on. You've had donuts three times a day all of your life, and so it just feels right to eat donuts all the time, right? If that's what people have learned to live on, they learn to live on sugar rushes. For them, it's become a part of their everyday life. But should Joel go to Micah and say, you know what? Salad's for the devil. You shouldn't eat salad. It's going to kill you. You should learn to eat donuts like me. Now, just because Joel has learned to be sustained by eating donuts, should he then try to take what, for Micah, for Micah, what means something to him, salad, eating healthy nutrition, should he try and rob Micah of what it is to him? And the point is this morning that many of us, you see, there's certain things about God that we're passionate about. For some people, we're passionate about worship. We love worship. We love raising our hands. We love dancing. We love shouting. We love clapping. And for some people, worship is everything. You know, for me, when I first got saved, music and worship was everything. I wasn't your typical reading type of guy. In high school, as a young kid, I was very active. I was outside every day, skateboarding, riding my bike, doing, of course, only good things. Every single day, no matter what, I was out, I was active. And when I got to high school, I was still active. It was hard to sit still. It was hard to sit and listen. You know, it was easier just to put your head on the table and fall asleep than to listen to the teacher, right? Not, not saying that's a good thing to do today, right? Just saying for me as a person, I was very active. And so I had to constantly be moving. And so when I fully got saved at 19, music and worship to me was everything, it drew me into God. It, it made me feel close to God. And there was times that I was worshiping God where I would be crying and I would be bawling and I'd be dancing and I'd be raising my hands all by myself, having a full-on concert all by myself. But it was something that brought me so close to God. And then I had to learn to balance my life out with starting to read and study scripture. And it took a while. For someone, if you don't spend 19 years of your life reading that much, you don't just go to become an avid reader overnight, right? It took a while for me to start to learn to read and to study 
And I did. And the more that I learned to read and study the scripture, it also became a food and a substance to me that I love to sit down and I love to crack open the Bible and I love to pray. Holy Spirit, reveal something to me. Holy Spirit, speak to me. Holy Spirit, make this scripture come alive. And I love sitting there reading and allowing that verse to just totally lighten up and give me life. And I love prayer times. And, and prayer is one of those things where, simply put, it's having a conversation with God, right? Sometimes many of us, we love to talk. Some of us don't like to talk so much, right? But prayer is praying but also listening. And so it's one of those three basic things that God has, like a donut, like a salad, like a sandwich, that God has given to us to learn to have a balance throughout the day and throughout the life that I need to do things every single day, little little parts of the day that are helping me out. As we wrap up this morning, a couple interesting thoughts before we close. Number one, we see a servant in the story who was abandoned. But it was the servant who was abandoned and who was left behind, who, was le who led David to the enemy. And David and his men slaughtered almost all of the men. And so sometimes in life, this story is a reminder, be careful who you abandon in your life because that person may come and bite you later. You know, even as Christians, sometimes we abandon people. We kick them out of our life. It's like being in the car and they say something we don't like, so we kick them out of the car and then we drive away and we never want to look back and we abandon them forever, right? In this story, this servant, he was sick and so they left him on the side of the road. This abandoned servant led David and his mighty men to the, to the Amicalites where they all mostly died. Watch out who you abandon in life because I do not want you to get bit later because of someone you abandoned because it bothered you. Secondly, we see in this story there were 600 men, but there was 200 men who could not fight the battle. And it shows when these men came back from the battle, the 400 men said to David, I don't want to give any of this plunder to the 200 men because they didn't go and fight the battle. I want to keep it for myself. Many of us Christians today, no offense, sometimes we get selfish about what God gives us. Why would I give this to that person over there? They're not doing anything. Why would I give anything to that homeless guy over there? He's not doing anything in life. Why would I give this money to that Christian over there? They're not doing anything for God. These 400 men, they plundered the enemy. They took their wives, their kids, but then they took all of the enemy's stuff. And so they had all this stuff. And they get back to town and they say, you know what? I'll give you your wife, I'll give you your kids, but I'm not gonna give you any of the livestock that I, that I took. I'm not giving you anything extra. Don't be that type of person. When there's somebody who's exhausted, when there's somebody who can't fight a daily battle because they're so exhausted and they're so fatigued, don't take it out of them if they're having a bad day. You know, the definition of fatigue, extreme tiredness resulting from mental, physical exertion or illness. How many people do we know today who are fatigued? How many people do we know every single day of life who are fatigued? They have extreme tiredness, and this is probably a lot of us, resulting from mental physical illness or exertion, right? People are fatigued today. And you see that there is attack. Obviously, we know that's one of the things that COVID does is it makes you tired, right? People who have caught COVID, 
know that, you know, one of the things that COVID does, it gives you this strong fatigue. But what it also did is made people spiritually fatigued to where they can't clear their head. They can't get out of, it's almost like walking in a swamp every day, right? It's almost like walking in a swamp or mush or quicksand. And so for a lot of people who last year and a half has been tragic and it's been horrible and there's been deaths and there's been sickness, they have not come out of the spiritual fatigue that has happened. What do we have to do? Stand with me this morning. We're going to finish and pray. And as we finish and pray this morning, you know, Jesus says these last parting words. And how many of us know that the last parting words that when someone's about to go and leave you, some of the last parting words are some of the most powerful and strong words. Jesus, as he turns to his disciples, the disciples that he spent three years with, the disciples that he ate with, that he drank with, the disciples that he hung out with, that he lived with for three years, the disciples that he did so many different things, been through so many different circumstances, what was some of the last things that he says to them? He says, I need you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so as we wrap up and pray this morning, you can go ahead and close your eyes. This morning, understanding that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, we have to rely on God and His Holy Spirit. Everywhere we go, God's Holy Spirit is everything. God's Holy Spirit is what brings light. God's Holy Spirit is what pushes the darkness away. Right? It's God's Holy Spirit that revives us and brings life to our mortal bodies. It's God's Holy Spirit that encourages us and brings in peace and hope and joy and patience and kindness and long-suffering self-control. It's God's Holy Spirit that no matter how old we get, no matter how old, no matter how gray, no matter what's going on, on the inside or outside, no matter how many of us feel fatigued physically, mentally, spiritually, no matter where we are in the battle, all of us this morning, we're on the front lines, we're on the front lines, and there's only one thing that we must need. It's the Holy Spirit. So if you can close your eyes and just lift your hands to heaven this morning. And just ask God this morning, God, fill me fresh again with the Holy Spirit. God, fill me with the Holy Spirit this morning. God, anoint my body with the Holy Spirit. God, wherever there may be mental, physical, or spiritual fatigue, God, I pray that you remove that in Jesus' name and replace it with the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that you remove any fatigue that's in my body, any fatigue that's in my muscles. Any fatigue that's in my mind. God, I pray this morning that you would remove any kind of fatigue. God, as I'm battling on the front lines, God, as I'm battling every single day from one battle to the next, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me, God, today every single thing that I need to fight the battle today, this week. God, fill me with your Holy Spirit.